I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 8. from verse 5 to 13 this morning. Can you hear me back there? Matthew chapter 8 verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have found, not found, so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the same self-same hour. Let's, uh, let's approach the throne of God before we go into the message. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your precious word through which we grow, through which our faith is strengthened. We thank you that you have preserved it for us in its perfect form. Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts and our minds, indeed our wills, would be open to your will, that the Spirit would be working indeed in our hearts this morning, that we might be transformed into the perfect image of your Son. And Lord, if there is any deficit, if there is any sin that is hidden within our hearts, that you would reveal it to us. Indeed, that we would forsake it, that we would turn to you with all of our hearts, that our lives were completely yours. I pray that your name would be honoured this morning, the name of Jesus would be lifted up, that he would be honoured in what is spoken. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this is an amazing story. There is so much I could speak to you about this particular passage this morning. I've decided to do a series on faith. We spoke on Wednesday evening at our, um, at our prayer night together about faith and the relationship between faith and grace. And from that, I think, has come a desire to, to preach more about faith. See, we call ourselves Faith Baptist Church, and I asked a question Wednesday evening. We are called faith. How much faith do we actually have? So... That question, I hope, will be on our minds and in our hearts over the course of the next month or so. But if I asked you what your definition of faith is this morning, if I said to you, what is faith? 
How would you answer? <clears throat> Probably the most common response or answer that I expect to receive is that it's what we believe. Faith is what you believe in. And yes, <clears throat> that would be part of the answer, I believe. But faith and belief are actually two different things. Though faith requires belief, belief doesn't necessarily come with faith. You might say, well, how can that be? How can you believe something and not have faith at the same time? Let me give you an example. I believe in a planet called Mars. I believe that it looks red. I believe that it, it revolves around the sun. I believe that at the moment there's, there is a rover on that planet travelling to and fro, looking for signs of water and life and whatever they're looking for over there. I believe it exists. <clears throat> I have a belief in the existence of Mars. <clears throat> that belief is quite sure. But to say that I have faith in it is a, altogether a different story. I have no faith in Mars. I'm not moved by Mars. I'm not concerned with Mars. Mars does not influence my decisions and my life. I don't look to Mars for the answers to my prayers. I have no desire in Mars. There is a difference between believing in something as a reality, as a truth, and having faith. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James makes an incredible statement. He says this, he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now, what does that have to do with it? Well, in this famous passage between faith and works, and James is trying to explain the relationship between both, he makes this particular bold statement. Good on you that you believe in God. Because there were, there were people in his day that believed in many gods, indeed, as there are today. Well done that you believe in one God, that you, you're, you're, you believe that he created all things, that he has a particular character, that he has these traits. Well done. But you know something? The devils believe the same thing as you. And they tremble. How good is it <clears throat> that you understand that what you believe, the devils believe as well? James' point here is simply this. How can you be confident that God will look favourably upon you because you simply say you believe in him and you believe in his existence? Simply believing is not enough. Simply believing is not enough. The demons themselves believe and are fearful of God. They believe in God's judgment. They know his holiness. They know who he is. They know he created the world. They know that he will judge them one day and they tremble because of it. <clears throat> while you believe, or while you say you believe in him and simply ignore him 
and treat him like that planet Mars that has no influence on your life. You simply believe that he's out there somewhere and he really has nothing to do with you. Which is a better concept of God? The devil's or man's? I would put to you that the devil has a more realistic view of God. He knows better who God is and he reacts in a better way. Man, on the other hand, the created being that he is, pretends in his own mind or creates this fantasy in his mind that he can simply say that God exists. I believe in God, yet pretend that he will not be held accountable to him. If we simply had a glimpse of the glory of God, we would fall on our knees before him because he is not only the maker of man, but the judge of man as well. We would see ourselves so beneath him, so sinful, that we would tremble before him. You might say, hang on, but I'm a child of God. I I don't need to tremble before God. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 4, God had called Isaiah to preach to his people. And Isaiah saw God in heaven. And it says in in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 6, And the posts of the door were moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When a man sees God, he can't help but be changed. He cannot help but fall to his knees. Many have fallen on their faces. My background is Catholic, most of you would know. And I can testify to you that I was raised in a loving home. I had a family that loved me, and and indeed we were not not just our immediate family, but our extended family. It was great, a man of love. <clears throat> Most of them said and still say they believe in God. They go to church. They pray. They even sacrifice certain things. They sacrifice their time and their efforts. They believe in many things the same as we. They believe in a trinity. They believe that Christ died for their sins on a cross. They believe that he rose again on the third day. They believe in the angels. They believe that God created the world. There are so many similarities. But there's something missing. Something missing that I realise, that I realise only after... Faith. There is no faith. There is a belief up here, but there is no faith from here. There is so much more to faith. There is so much more that the world does not understand. 
The centurion in this passage was someone with great authority. He could command a group of 80 to 100, up to 400 soldiers, the world's most feared soldiers. They were ruthless, brutal, and he was their commander. He could tell them, do this and do that. He held power, unlike many. He was there to keep the peace in Jerusalem. He was there to make sure that the Jews remained subdued, that they would not get out of hand. This man was a Gentile, yet he came to Jesus. And Jesus commended his faith to his own disciples. What did he do? I want to look at two things that he did this morning. There are so many things I can speak about in this passage, but I just want to focus on two things. The first thing I want you to understand is that he came to the Lord expecting that Jesus could do what he asked. He had a confidence in Jesus. And we find that in two main verses in the passage. And it says, When Jesus entered in Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. He came out of his way to Jesus, to meet Jesus. And verse 9, it says, when he's explaining why he's not worthy for Jesus to come to his home, he says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. He was revealing his faith through those, those words. He says, I am so confident in who you are and what you can do that I believe you don't even have to see my sick servant in order to heal them. That is faith. He came to the Lord. He went out of his way. He knew about Jesus and he obviously believed in him and who he was for he called him Lord. He came expecting. He came expecting because he had faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us this about faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. It's impossible to please God without faith. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Is that works-based salvation? No. But that's exactly what this centurion did. He sought him. He believed in who he was. And he believed that he would answer his prayer. The centurion displays this type of faith. Not an intellectual faith. Not a faith that simply said, oh, I believe there was a Jesus and he does miracles, and he died on a cross 2,000 years ago. This was a real faith. So the first thing I want you to understand about faith is that you can have an intellectual faith. Intellectual, which means it sits simply up here. It requires no devotion. It requires no going out of your comfort zone. It does not require you to come to God. 
and fall on your knees and ask. It's an intellectual faith. It wasn't a faith that simply believed God, believed in the existence of God and believed that he could do certain things, that he was the creator of the universe. There was much more to it. I know many people who call themselves Christians, who have a strong conviction and strong belief that God will judge the world. And if you go through most of the things in the Bible, they believe them very strongly. Yet, there is no personal faith. Yet, they have not met Jesus and spoken to him. He has not changed their life. The centurion had the type of faith that changed life. He had what you would call saving faith. He not only believed in Jesus, the Son of God, the living person, but he trusted him to perform that which was impossible for man. He had confidence in his teaching, in his ability, in who he was as a person, and he placed his faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, and in this case, for his own servant. <clears throat> but the next point I want you to understand, or the second major point I want you to understand in this particular passage, is in what context he came to the Lord with. Yes, the first one, he came with confidence and trust, believing and expecting. The second part I want you to understand is he came understanding his own sinful need. He understood his position before Christ. Matthew 8.8 8 says, <clears throat> The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. The centurion clearly understood that he was a sinner before the spotless lamb of God. While Jesus was perfect and holy, he understood that he was not. He was the one who had the need, not Jesus. So he came to him humbly. Consider this. This was a centurion. He could have wiped out most of Jerusalem if he wanted to. He could have had Jesus killed. He could have done many things that were under his command and authority. He was a Roman citizen with rights and privileges that the Jews didn't have. He was representative of the most powerful nation probably the world has ever seen. The Romans would have considered the Jews uncivilised, backwards, petty. Yet here we have a Roman centurion approaching a Jewish carpenter. For help. The centurion was standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was speaking to the very one who created him and everything else in the universe. The centurion understood that he was not even worthy that Jesus would come to his home. Yes. The centurion understood that he was a sinner 
before the perfect Christ and that he needed him. The centurion's faith revealed itself through action, revealed itself in what he did and what he said. What does this type of faith look like today? Have you seen this type of faith? Does it exist in our church? That we would come to Christ expecting great things, things that no man can do. Understanding that there is no power or ability within ourselves. Do we have this type of faith? There are, many people, there are many things that people have faith in these days. You see, everyone has faith. Believers, non-believers. Everyone has faith. The question is where it's directed. People put tremendous, tremendous amounts of faith in human wisdom. Many people spend their entire lives resting on human logic and reason. It's the highest pinnacle for them. It's the thing they trust. As if human reason and brain power can somehow solve all problems. Hello? Philosophy that has come down through the ages, and regardless of all the different philosophers that are out there, is all contradictory. The so-called smartest philosophers in our world contradict each other and disagree with each other. There is no consensus. Look up any book on philosophy and you will find a wide range of views with no uniform conclusion. Or maybe you trust in science. Yep. You trust in science. If your faith is in science, you can't go wrong, can you? I mean, science is... is the most advanced thing that we have. I mean, science has gotten us this far in terms of technology and understanding. Surely we can trust in science. <coughs> well, I remember a couple of years ago when scientists mapped out the human genome. Did you remember that? The first time they mapped the human genome, which means they, they measured and counted every gene that was in the human DNA. That thing that makes us us, that makes us look different, talk different. They map this thing out. They put it on a map. The blueprint of how we work, encoded in our genes. Well, after all their counting and measuring and mapping and doing, they came, they came to an interesting conclusion and they said, you know something? We've found that there is a portion of the DNA which does all the work and the rest of it is all junk. It's all junk. It doesn't do anything. It's just there. Why is it there, Mr. Scientist? Well, you see, because we've evolved over millions and millions of years, what happens is every time something changes, something else gets, gets advanced and something else gets left behind, but you don't lose that DNA. It just hangs around for the ride for the rest of, for the, rest of the trip. So there's leftover useless DNA, for example, of things that we needed when we were maybe in trees, um, that is no longer needed anymore. 
We don't need that anymore, but it's just, it's just still sitting there and it's, not, it's dormant. It doesn't do anything. <clears throat> so it's accumulated <clears throat> over millions of years. So it really enforces the, the theory of, the, of evolution, doesn't it? I mean, surely if you had all this junk DNA that's just been sitting there because we've been evolving over all these millions of years, then that makes sense, doesn't it? Wrong. Just last week, I read an article in a science journal that gave the results of a team of scientists who had been given a year to look at all this junk DNA. And guess what they found? It does something. It actually all does something. It's there for a reason. It actually tells the normal DNA, the, the one that, does the, that gives you your coloured eyes and all that sort of stuff, and it tells it when to turn off and on and how much and what to do and when to do it. It controls the whole thing. So <clears throat> let's get this straight. At one stage, we were mostly junk DNA, but guess what? It's all there for a reason. Hmm. Now what are they going to do? Well, now they're going to spend the next 50 years or so trying to work out exactly what that junk DNA does. Because there's so much of it, now they're realising, oh, that does this, and that does something else. I remember when global warming was at the height of its hysteria in 2007, 2008. And Melbourne had just been through a 15-year drought. 15 years of drought. And the CSIRO and other scientific bodies and, and meteorologists who were on this bandwagon confidently proclaimed that Melbourne would be in drought because global warming had affected our weather patterns and we were in danger of becoming like a desert over here. So the Brax government decided at that stage, because of the warnings, because global warming was only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse as it went along, because temperatures are continuing to rise, they'd better build this desalination plant, which has cost the state billions of dollars. Um, guess what? Since 2009, we have had more rain here than the last 15 years put together. Our dams are now sitting over 75% and they're still rising. And that desalination plant is sitting there as a testimony of our scientists' wonderful conclusions. Can you put your faith in science? Oh yeah, science has... You can be confident about certain things in science, but can you put your faith in it? Maybe you trust money. That's a good one. I mean, money... Can't go wrong with money, can you? Money's always a great fallback position. And a lot of people trust in money. The more money I have sitting in the bank or invested in properties and, and the like, that's good, isn't it? Well, money can't save you. Doesn't matter how much money you have, it can't save you. Arguably one of the wealthiest men in the world, a fellow called Steve Jobs from Apple, died from pancreatic cancer. He had plenty of money in the bank. He was world famous. 
He had everything at his disposal, and he died like everyone else. And last time I checked, regardless of how rich you were, you still had the same problems, the same sicknesses, and eventually the same result as everyone else. Death doesn't really care about how much money you have. And neither does God. Because in the end, when you stand before him, you aren't standing before God with all your money bags. What about your family? Family can never let you down, right? You can have faith in your family. You can have faith in your friends. You can have faith in your education, your influence, your power, your property. There are so many things that people have faith in these days. But ultimately, they all fail. The centurion knew that. The centurion knew that there was only one he could go to. And despite his influence, his power, his authority, he knew he was helpless to help his servant. When it came to dealing with death, so he went to the one who could give life. Regardless of which way you look at it, Regardless of where you turn, our world and everything in it cannot answer any of the important questions for you. It cannot give you any certainty. It all ultimately all fails. There is not one big question in your life this world can answer satisfactorily. They can't even find the cure for the common cold. And let me ask you a question this morning. Will you entrust your eternal soul with them? Who will you entrust your soul? And this is the important part of this whole message, really. <clears throat> the centurion came asking for a miracle. Can we go to God asking for a miracle too? Can we approach Christ asking for this miracle? Well, <clears throat> we can. You can come to Christ. Just as the centurion did. And expect a miracle. But the most important miracle. The most important thing you can come to Christ with this morning. And ask him. And beseech him. Is that he would save your soul. True faith. True faith begins with entrusting your soul to him and saying, you know something? Lord, <clears throat> I don't know many things in this world. I don't know what it's like on the other side when I die. I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. I don't know if my family will let me down, my health will let me down, I will let me down. But I know something and I do trust something that you won't. I know you know what's on the other side. I know you conquered death. I know you are who you say you are. And I give you my soul. The greatest miracle that you will ever experience or see in your life is the salvation of your own soul. And, the, matter, and the, the truth of the matter is, 
You are either saved this morning or you're not. You are either in Christ because you have trusted him with your soul or you're not. You are either going to heaven this morning or you're going to hell. And not just to hell. Because hell isn't the final resting place of all those who have rejected him. Hell is merely a holding cell. Because the final place is a lake of fire. I would say worse than hell. Can you come to Christ this morning expecting a miracle? Yes, you can. But the first step of faith, and I like that phrase, is to trust your heart with him. What can I expect if I come to Christ? Well, John chapter 6 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And verse 40 in John chapter 6 says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus will not cast you out if you come to him. Regardless of who you are, what your background is, what position you find yourself in right now, if you come to him humbly, he will not cast you out. He will not reject you regardless of what you've done. And the gift he wants to give you is not just a temporary gift, but an enduring gift, an eternal gift, the gift of life. This is the gift that God offers to every sinner who comes to him for salvation. This is the first step of faith. And I said I, like, I love that, that, that phrase, the first step or the step of faith. Because faith has action. The centurion walked to get to Jesus. Faith begins with a step. Do you remember I explained to you how you have other types of faith or belief that really don't cut it? Like believing in Christ as some historical figure or even believing that God is all that he says he is but never coming to him in faith? There are two different types of faith. There, are saving, there is saving faith and there is an intellectual or dead faith. Well, the intellectual dead faith, even as um, excited as you want to get about it, is like a baby crawling around on its hands and knees. That's that type of faith. But the faith that puts its, its trust for its eternal soul in Christ is the first time you step on your feet, you get on your feet. And you know something? The world looks very different when you're on your feet than when you're on the ground. The person who puts their faith in Christ has stood up for the first time and they see the world the way God sees the world. Not with their face planted on the ground, but upright, the way God intended us to be. That is the first step of faith. No longer walking on all fours. And when you stand up in that way and you see the world from God's perspective, you can never go back on your hands and feet again, can you? 
Tell me a child who, once they get on their feet and they see the world the way Christ sees the world, they never go back on their hands and feet. But that's only the beginning. You see, the first time a a child gets up on its feet and starts to walk, it falls, it stumbles. But that's the beginning of its walk. That's the beginning of its life on its feet. And God asks us as Christians and expects us as Christians to strengthen in our walk. The Bible is a big book. You can spend your entire life learning, studying, reading this book. How many verses of this book does it take for a person to be saved? How many pages do you think? One page. I could take one page of verses in this book, go through them with a person, that person then puts their faith in Christ, and they are saved. So what's the rest of this book for? What's the rest of this book for? It's so that once you're on your feet and saved, you grow. You are strengthened. You walk. You run. You fight. All the things that you need to learn to become a strong Christian. Yes, you can get saved with a few verses from this book. But to grow, you need the entire book. The first step of faith is putting your trust in Christ to save your soul. If you haven't done that, the rest of it is superfluous, useless. You can learn a lot of stuff in that book, but if you haven't taken the first step, you're still on your hands and knees. You're not seeing the world for what it is and God for who he is. That has to be your first step. The Bible says when you do that, God gives you a new life. He gives you peace. He gives you a new direction, new abilities. The Bible says that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that God, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I accept the sacrifice that he made for me on that cross and I believe that his blood cleanses all my sin that has made me an enemy of God, I stand before him justified. All my sins are forgiven. I'm a new person. I can now start a new life. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace. Am I saved by grace through faith? Yes, through faith. By believing, God bestows his grace upon you. He gives you something you don't deserve. He gives me something that I don't deserve. Salvation. So true life begins with the step of faith. And if we have anything to learn from the centurion, it's how we should approach God and what type of faith we should have as Christians. See, many of us have been walking now for a while, but many of us don't walk properly. Many of us continue to stumble and fall find ourselves flat on our faces. But God doesn't want us to be like that. 
It doesn't need to be like that. Because if we live a life of faith, if we continue to believe that God will finish the work that he has begun in us, then we will strengthen day by day. As Alan, as Alan said before, that when we come to this place, we will leave better, not worse. And that as each day goes by and we pray and we read God's word and we fellowship and we have communion with God, we grow day by day stronger and stronger in the faith. I mentioned on Wednesday night that faith is like a muscle. God gives you the muscle. The question is whether you will use the muscle. Because if you don't use a muscle, it withers. But if you continue to use a muscle, it grows stronger and stronger. So, let me close up. If you have never accepted the free gift of salvation and you are still on your hands and knees walking around or crawling around, will you take your first step today? Will you stand up and say, I'll put my faith in Christ? If you haven't done that, come and see me after the service. It doesn't take much to do it. And God can give you a new life. For those who have already taken their first step and are on the road of faith, how is your faith this morning? Are you a person of faith? Do you expect Jesus to be doing great things? When you pray, do you pray with faith and confidence? Or is your faith weak and failing? This subject is way too big for me to cover today. I'm grateful the Lord held up my voice for the whole thing. But over the next few weeks, I want to explore faith more. I want to challenge us more to live by faith. Indeed, we call ourselves faith. If we aren't people of faith, then what are we doing in this church? God bless you.